0: Everyone, welcome. This is Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England. Welcome to another show of medically speaking. I'm happy you can join us tonight. We are really excited to switch gears a little bit tonight. Um, for the last month, we focused on women's health um, during Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Ending our our month last month with Dr. Beth Sealing, um, our breast on breast surgeon at St. Mary's Hospital, um, providing us with a lot of education on breast health, so we thought we'd switch gears to men's health um, during the month of uh, November, and I'm really excited to have with me tonight um, one of our physicians that's joined Trinity Health of New England Medical Group, our urologist, Dr. Anthony Kim. Hi, Doc.
1: Hi, Robin. How are you?
0: I'm great. How are you?
1: I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for inviting me.
0: Absolutely. I think this is the first time you and I did radio together it is it's the I'm first excited. how did I let you slip through the crack stack I don't know I've known you for a really long time
1: I've just been one of the unlucky ones I guess
0: <laughs> now you've been the ones kind of hiding under the radar but we finally got you
1: <laughs> I'm yours
0: you're mine for this next 50 minutes I've got you and we're really excited to turn the focus a little bit to men's health and you um have been now with the medical group how long
1: so it's it's running about 2 years right
0: now. yeah mm-hmm. 2 years you Something and Dr Paul Moy
1: Right? That's, that's correct. But I've been in the area for, this is my 18th year now.
0: I was just going to say that I've known you for at least, personally I've known you for at least the last 16 years, because I always date yeah. it based on, on our first interaction with my husband. So I always go back sure. and think to how long ago that we've met. And we are so honored that you and Dr. Paul Moy joined um, the medical group, and we couldn't have two better leaders for our urology department um, here in Waterbury. So really excited that you joined us and you're bringing all your expertise and a lot of things are changing and we're going to be doing a lot of great things.
1: Yes, I'm looking forward to. Thanks so much for those kind words. But we've we felt very welcomed in the system, and you know I think it's an opportunity for Dr. Moy and myself to, you know, definitely advance the boundaries of urologic care in this community. And I think it's a really exciting venture.
0: It definitely is. And being that Trinity Health of New England is a regional system, it allows you to also bring those best practices as our physician leaders to our other hospitals.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a it's a way to sort of uh, standardize or uh, our care amongst multiple different hospitals and communities, and and I think you know patients be using best practice guidelines, and I think patients will benefit from it.
0: Definitely, and we, you know, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, we always use the month of October to focus on Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and I really wanted to use the opportunity, especially with you and Dr. Moy, as two of our physician leaders, especially in the field of urology, to focus a bit on men's health. And, you know, you and I kind of went back and forth a little bit um, on what we would talk about tonight. But I really think focusing on those screenings for men and how important it is for men to have routine screenings. And one of those screenings is definitely for prostate cancer.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, whenever you think about men's health, I think you have to center it um, uh, towards like prostate health and right. um, you know prostate cancer is the number one cancer that affects men over the age of 65. I, I think the, the recent statistics are uh, every year there's about 250,000 new cases of prostate cancer diagnosed um, and uh, on the flip side although you know there has been some there, and rightly so. Prostate cancer is, and we can talk about this in in, in a few minutes, but it's not a terribly aggressive type of cancer, but it right. still causes about thirty five thousand deaths per year. Um, and and it, and you know the American Cancer Society has recommended screening in in men um, starting at the age of fifty to approximately about seventy five years old. And the screening is just an annual prostate exam as well as a a PSA test, which is a blood test that we use as a screening test for prostate cancer.
0: So let's focus on those two screening methods. So, you know, men really should be meeting with a urologist for those two screening tests, would you agree?
1: Yes. I mean, you know, this has been well-documented, you know, and this is something that we've done, um, you know, for many years. And um, and so it's recommended once a year for those men over the age of 50 um, to have a, a blood test, a PSA, as well as a prostate exam um, for screening for prostate cancer. You know, there's a lot of controversies, I guess, out there about... Um, how detailed screening should be for prostate cancer. There's a lot of misconceptions about the nature of prostate cancer. But uh, if, of anything, um, I think the bare screening, um, least invasive type of thing to to follow men and to judge what their risks of prostate cancer are is just to do a prostate exam and obtain a blood test.
0: Absolutely. I know my husband tried to sneak under the radar many times, but I we finally got him on board. So, oh, okay. yeah, poor Rich. I know, and he's always listening to us. So <laughs> he's always my guinea pig on these shows. But, you know, when we talk about... The digital rectal exam, which is part mm-hmm. of the screening method, what are you, yeah. as the urologist, looking for when you do that exam?
1: So there, there's a couple things. I mean, one is that it's a good assessment as to size of the prostate, and um, and we all know that as as time goes on in men, their prostates get larger and cre- create other sort of problems that are independent of prostate cancer, right. difficulty urinating and other types of issues um, and, and, and as well as to assess whether there's any prostate nodules or any worry about prostate cancer. You know I always tell patients um, you know the unfortunate thing about a prostate exam is that y- y- you can't feel the entire prostate so there are, there are, there's a part of the prostate that's left um, that that cannot be really examined on a digital rectal exam. And so that's where we use PSA. So you have to use both in conjunction. Um, and the PSA is a blood test. Um, it's, uh, it's actually a chemical that gets released by the prostate and in men who have prostate cancer, um, their PSA levels are at a level that are, are higher than what's typical for a man's age. That being said, there are some controversies about PSA, and and, and the problem with PSA is that although um, it helps us determine who's at an elevated risk of prostate cancer and who's not, there are other things that can cause a PSA to go up as well that aren't necessarily prostate cancer, but I, I do tell patients the PSA is a, is a Blood test. that's used purely as a screening test. It's right. not a diagnostic test. Um, all it can do is assess risk of prostate cancer. And if if the PSA is elevated, and or if there's a finding on a digital rectal exam that one is worried about prostate cancer, um, the next step typically is a prostate biopsy.
0: So let's break it down a little bit. So uh, you know, a gentleman comes into you, and you know you 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 do their digital rectal exam. You're not feeling a nodule. The prostate may be a bit swollen. Um, and then they have their PSA, which has to be done on a different day, right? You don't usually do those together.
1: Well, uh, you know, there has been some sort of misconceptions about a PSA. Yeah. And, you know, they have done studies looking at the effects of a digital rectal exam on the level of PSA. And they found that actually there is no impact. Really? Um, so, you know, in the, in the old days, we would do them on different days or, but now looking at it, um, it really is not something that will, uh, the results will alter just on a, a routine prostate exam. However, if somebody does have something like an infection of the prostate, that can cause, and if you examine the prostate while it's acutely infected, right. sometimes that can, that can create a, that An can,
0: elevated PSA. Uh,
1: yeah, that can show up as a higher PSA than, than typical. But just on a routine prostate exam, you can get a prostate exam and get a PSA the same. The
0: same. So, you know, back I, I say this because back in the day when we used to run prostate screening Screenings. Mm-hmm. We used to do them at both hospitals at the same yeah. time, and we used to do them in the month of September. And I remember they had us draw the PSA before the before the gentleman went in to do mm-hmm. the dr the digital rectal exam. We used to so they used to have us draw yeah. them first, get it all set, yeah. and then send them in. So that's why I mentioned that.
1: Yeah, no, it. it you know, we used to think that way. Yeah. Um, however, you know, it's one of these things that. Has been sort of, I mean, there are things in medicine in which these ideas get sort of perpetuated. Um, However, nowadays, most people would agree that, you know, just a routine prostate exam doesn't really alter the PSA significantly. Um, You know, there are other sort of misconceptions. I mean, people would think you you have to remain abstinent for like a week before you get a PSA. There has been no um, uh, documented differences in PSA based on the proximity of sexual you know sexual intercourse right. or ejaculation or anything like that so um, so yeah those those kind of those things that people would use as barriers to get a PSA drawn you can't use those excuses can't use them
0: anymore <laughs> now what are the levels that you are looking at when you're looking at a PSA what's within a normal range
1: yeah so I mean so you know PSA is a, is a chemical that gets released by the prostate g- gland and and you know there are many factors that can increase um, a PSA so you know definitely I typically use 4.0 as mm-hmm. a um, as a and I think most urologists would as sort of the threshold as to whether to con- in in younger men and I say younger under the age of 70 or so um, as an uh, as a sort of threshold as to whether to uh, recommend a prostate biopsy. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, the normal levels vary upon ages. Um, and, you know, it's typically someone in their 50s should really have a PSA less than one, you know. Wow. But um, but I I still will, even if their PSAs are a little higher, let, let's suppose there are three, as long as they're under that Mm -hmm. threshold, and I don't feel any abnormalities on a prostate exam, I typically will watch them. Um, But 4.0 is the typical threshold level that I would use as um, determining whether one's at higher or lower risk. Now as you get older too, the normal threshold goes higher too, So, um, and the numbers are typically at at, at the age of 75, um, patients with a PSA of 6.5, or less are considered to be normal. So if your PSA is 7, which in a, or let's say your PSA is 6 in a patient that's 75 years old or in their 70s, typically that would be considered to be within age related normal limits. However, in a 50 or 60 year old, if you had a PSA of 6, that would be a little bit more on the concerning side. That would put you at a little bit of a higher risk.
0: And when you do the PSA, I mean, you, you, First, look to, okay, if the PSA is elevated, especially if you've been following someone it's never been elevated before, that's definitely a red light for you to say, okay, maybe we should think about biopsy. But yeah. are there other things that elevate that PSA that would cause the PSA to be more elevated and that you could try yeah. before doing a biopsy?
1: Absolutely, and, and you know, I never recommend a biopsy based on just one elevated number mm-hmm. uh, because you're right on. I mean, there are other things that can cause a PSA to go up. Um, you know, like I said, PSA is a chemical that gets produced by the prostate. cell. So um, certainly prostate cancer, it, it's, um, it's a fairly fast-growing type, or, you know, I guess it's a faster-growing type of cell. So if the cell grows fast, the level of PSA sometimes gets ramped up. But PSA will also go up if, the, if there are more s- prostate cells. So the bigger your prostate is, that too can create an ele- a situation where your PSA may be elevated um, without any evidence of prostate cancer. Um, prostate infection or inflammation, that too can cause your PSA to go up. Um, you know, when we look at Statistics as to what the risk of prostate cancer is based on your PSA. Um, you know, PSA. Although we use PSA of four as being a threshold, there's still a risk of prostate cancer in in men with PSAs less than four, and right. and, and and usually the risk is less than it's low. I mean, it's less than ten percent, but there is um, there is a risk when you get into levels between four and ten. the The risks start to Go up a little bit more. So, but there's still, um, there's still roughly 25 to 33%. So, a majority of those people who have an elevated, you know, quote unquote, elevated PSA greater than four, still, even though the risk of cancer is up, majority of them still, once you biops them, have benign disease. So, right. um, you know, that being said, there's more, there's definitely other things that can cause your, your PSA to go up. The unfortunate thing is that at this I mean, there are newer technologies that are, that are being developed that can differentiate whether that that elevated PSA is prostate cancer or something else. Um, but they're still sort of like in their testing phases now.
0: And you know and i'm going to use the analogy of what i know that we that has currently being done for patients with breast cancer and us, you know and physicians seeing something on imaging that causes them to say you know let's just be sure why sit and wait right yeah. so they'll do what they call stereotactic breast biopsy and you know they take an area of tissue and they get an answer and they it's much easier either to treat early Disease or definitely have that sigh of release saying, okay, we have benign tissue because most times, like you said, as with prostate cancer, it's benign. So, the procedure yeah. that we would do to do a bi- prostate, you know, biopsy of the prostate, it's also fairly simple.
1: Yeah. Oh, yes. I mean, you know, it's, it's a routine sort of. that we do here in the office it takes maybe four or five minutes to do Um, and you know Dr. Moy and I have a kind of a protocol I think most urologists do as to um, treating patients preemptively with some prophylactically with antibiotics prior to the procedure to minimize any risk of infection I think our risk of any serious infection is well less than 1% I mean um, it's probably, we're talking maybe 0.1%. I, 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 to be honest, I can't remember the last one patient who ever had like a, a an infection that required any sort of in, like uh, admission into a hospital or right. anything like that. Um, and it's pretty well tolerated. We we've learned a lot about anesthet- how we how to anesthetize the prostate, so that minimizes some of the discomfort. I used to do prostate biopsies without any sort of um, local anesthesia at the VA when I was training, and I knew then it was very how uncomfortable it could be. But n- now, knowing what we know now and knowing how to to anesthetize the prostate, the patient can seamlessly go through a prostate biopsy without too much problem.
0: And if you diagnose it as benign prostate Mm -hmm. for the patient, what is the protocol to follow with that patient afterwards?
1: Yeah, usually, and and sometimes that's so, although the prostate biopsy um, is is a sampling of the prostate tissue, so it's it's important to know that it's not, although it's pretty good, and if you use the certain... um, certain landmarks to know where to do the biopsy and everything it's unlikely that you'll miss a significant prostate cancer but that being said it's 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 um the prostate biopsy biopsy in of itself is a sampling of different regions of the prostate Mm -hmm. so even though the even though the biopsy may be negative there's always that theoretical chance that there's Um, prostate cancer that is still there so Mm -hmm. what I'll do is I'll follow the the PSA and so um, you know usually if they're benign I'll see them back in six months and get another PSA Um, you know like I said science and technology continue to advance and there are certain tests that will look at the genetic the genetic makeup of a prostate cell and even if it's benign will tell us with with some probability whether there is an increased risk of developing prostate cancer in the future or if this is really clearly benign tissue. So, you know, there are other tests that we have access to that we didn't have in the past that can help stratify that risk of people who have elevated PSAs in
0: benign tissue in a biopsy. And the biopsy, the the samplings are so small, correct? They're little.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're only, we're talking... Two or three millimeters wow. in width and maybe a, an inch in length. So, you know, it's a sampling. Um, right. You know, uh, and but you know, the, you know, they've done studies too, looking at how many biopsies would be, uh, how many biopsies one should take of the prostate. And you know, the the thing is, in the old days, they used to just do six samples, and they mm-hmm. decided that was too few, and um, there is oh, that there was an increased risk of missing cancer when you take too few. Um, number of biopsies in the prostate. However, if you take too many, you may catch more prostate cancers, but there's a significant risk of complications of the biopsy. Right. So patients may have much more um, uh, risk of infection, they have more risk of, of pain, of bleeding. And so they decided that, and all the studies have looked at 12, a sample of 12 is 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 probably the best number that will give you the best yield of finding prostate cancer uh, at the same time with the least amount of uh, risk of infection.
0: So you know we you know I want to I want to go to prostate cancer in a minute and talk mm-hmm. about once it is diagnosed and next steps and what we do. But I want to focus yeah. a little bit before on finishing up with the benign prostate. So you follow these patients, and I know is there other treatment options for patients to help lower their PSAs in a a way that you would prescribe? And do patients also um, get followed very routinely for a long period of time?
1: Yeah, I mean, even if their PSAs are elevated, um, you know, there are other ways to sort of Narrow down or, or to cone down on the prostate and really tell whether there's still a potential risk. I mean, right. there you know right. MRI technology has really developed over the last couple of years or so, and mm-hmm. and in those patients who have an although it's not a hundred percent modality in patients who have um, a rising PSA in which they've had a negative biopsy, it's another modality that can also make sure that there's no other areas in the prostate that are missed. Um, in patients who are benign. Um, who have who have benign tissue too? What I have been doing is I've been giving patients finasteride, and and there is a, a, a study that was done, a pretty landmark study looking at the prostate cancer prevention trial. It was based it was a it was an an um, international study, um, and you know it it had uh, maybe about twenty thousand uh, men in it, could be more. But um, and what they found is by using finasteride. That significantly lowered the risk of prostate cancer in the future. Wow! Um, one of the other things too is that you know is that it does bring down your PSA, and sometimes, and you know, we used to think it's kind of an artificial bringing it down. I mean, it will shrink the prostate, it will prevent prostate cancer, the PSA will also go down. But you know, it typically uh, it still needs to be watched, even if the PSA goes down. Right. right. Um, but. But, um, but you know, there are benefits in finasteride um, as far as like, you know, minimizing um, issues of like BPH symptoms or Wait. urinary symptoms, you're yep. decreasing the risk of prostate cancer, stabilizing PSA, um, those are all like sort of the benefits. So I will prescribe that and then still continue to follow patients uh, with PSAs
0: how often do you recommend patients with benign um, biopsies to have a PSA
1: with an elevated PSA yeah. yeah I would still do every like six months yep and say I mean there's some controversy I mean some and different practices are different some people would say if once they've diagnosed that there's no cancer they'd move to a year like mm-hmm. a standard and and sometimes I'll do that too if if the PSA is is if i if I biopsied the patient and their and their pathology was benign and their pSA was elevated if it's to remain stable you know i'll I'll maybe sometimes stretch out the frequency of pSAs um, right. you know so it really depends on on the patient
0: are there any other benign prostate um Concerns that you see with patients. I know you mentioned this infection. So, patients, if a patient presents with a prostate infection, is that something that happens to them more often often than not, or you know, is it something you see more often in certain men? And some men have it once yeah. and then don't have it again.
1: No, I mean, prostatitis is is pretty is a pretty common and mm-hmm. sort of thing that we see in the office, and it does go hand in hand with. Um, with having an enlarged prostate right. one of the things too is that you know when sometimes there are guys who get re, patients that get referred to our office with with an elevated PSA but also have prostatitis symptoms and it's important to note that in patients who have prostatitis they'll usually almost always have an elevation in their PSA mm-hmm. you know you get i get more concern in patients who have elevations in their PSA that have no symptoms right because in early prostate cancer there are actually no symptoms there's no urinary symptoms there's no pain or anything like that um, it's it's when um so prostatitis is something it's a basically a urinary tract infection of the prostate gland. There's a lot of sometimes misunderstandings of what prostatitis is by sometimes, you know, other doctors, And um, but what it is, it, it's it's an, the prostate's connected to the urethra and the urinary tract, and the urinary tract has bacteria that sometimes can can migrate into the prostate and cause an infection, and patients get all the symptoms of a urinary tract infection. So they have frequency, uh, urgency, burning when they pee. The only difference between a regular urinary tract infection and prostatitis is that many times the urine culture in of itself, the test that we use to determine what bacteria is in a urine, in prostatitis, it's, it can be normal, it can right. be clean. Right. Um, so in those patients, in those men who have large prostates, tender prostates on, on exam, um, all the symptoms of a urinary tract infection and a negative urine culture that typically is prostatitis and requires antibiotics right. um, you know so so that is something that I see quite quite frequently in the office.
0: Is there anything that men can do to help prevent prostatitis, or is there anything they can do too um, organically to reduce? the urinary frequencies and the the prostate from swelling i know normal aging process they can't change that yeah. but i mean there's
1: some you know i do think some of the um the sort of what they've been calling them like nutraceuticals but they're more like supplements things mm-hmm. like saw palmetto yep. um i think is really effective it it comes from a berry that has an active ingredient um, although ver- at much less of the potency as finasteride. Right. And so it can, it can shrink your prostate. It can give men with mild prostate symptoms some relief. Um, you know, prostatitis prevention-wise, it's, it's difficult. I mean, mm-hmm. I think in patients who have recurrent prostatitis, much of it is related to an, L, uh, to an enlargement of the prostate mm-hmm. and just being on those types of medications for enlarged prostate can minimize or decrease the risk of of recurrent prostatitis. Um, you know, as far as like the typical, I mean, there have been other studies looking at um, certain types of uh, like natural supplements that can help minimize uh, prost- uh, like an enlarged prostate or or prostate cancer. I think they've looked at selenium and mm. zinc, yep. Um, yep. which have been um, shown to have some beneficial effects too. Um, but you know, I typically say, you know, um, and it's something easy that most urologists say is that as far as diet goes, whatever is good for your heart, is typically, typically going to be good for your prostate.
0: Right, so, I've heard you know, that too.
1: <laughs> yeah, you I've know, heard you that Well balanced meal and plenty of fluids and those kinds of
0: things. Now, you know, the other side of the coin when a patient has the um, biopsy of the prostate mm-hmm. and you have a diagnosis of cancer. What then? So let's talk about yeah. that first. You know, you get that report, and then what are the next steps?
1: Yeah, so so you know, prostate cancer, so much of it, um, you know, it, it, I always tell patients above anything else, um, the pro- prostate cancer is a much different type of cancer than any other cancers out there. And, and, the, and the reason it is is that it's such a slow growing cancer. It doesn't affect men in days, weeks, or months. I mean, it sometimes it takes years for prostate cancer to really affect men. Um, so I always start off, if, if, if I see a patient who's had a biopsy and it comes back as prostate cancer, I always tell patients that. Um, and, you know, a lot of the way that we we decide on whether to treat a patient or how to treat a patient is going to be dictated by, of course, a pathology, um, you know, because there are different types of grades and uh, different types of uh, prostate cancer that are sometimes more aggressive or least aggressive. I mean, that does factor into how we decide to t- to treat patients, um, but also their age and their health status. Mm. Um, so, you know, the way that you would treat maybe a 50-year-old, 55-year-old patient with prostate cancer may be different than the way that you treat a 75-year-old patient with prostate cancer or, or an 85-year-old uh, with prostate cancer. Um, and, you know, there, there are different, you know, you always have to uh, balance um, the benefits of a procedure or uh, to to treat prostate cancer and the potential risks of it. Um, so I mean certainly, um, you know, prostate cancer is such a slow growing cancer. I always like look at things simply as to, um, you know, how long a certain procedure may, may benefit patients with prostate cancer and I, and I think although, for instance, if somebody has um, this may be getting a little bit off topic, but uh, you know, if somebody has um, a prostate cancer that's confined to the prostate, uh, and they're 80 years old. Is it, you know, is it really right. necessary to put them through an invasive type of uh, procedure to cure their prostate cancer when the cancer moves so slowly? Right. Now, if you're in your 50s, you know, although it may be a slow-growing cancer, there's if someone lives long enough, that cancer may become a problem. Um, so, you know, a lot of the way we dictate, so I'll, I'll talk to patients, we'll talk about, the information I get from a biopsy is is whether it comes back as uh, prostate cancer or not. Um, if it is prostate cancer, the next thing I, I get from it is is a grade, and, and the grade is, is, is a pathology sort of, dictated grade it's called a Gleason score right. and typically the Gleason score ranges between six and ten. Six being I mean you know theoretically a Gleason score could be a five or lower but I've never seen that usually it's either it ranges between six and ten and six being the least aggressive type of prostate cancer very slow indolent um, not very aggressive and 10 being the most aggressive type of prostate cancer. Um, so that information I'll get from the, uh, from the biopsy results. The second thing I'll get, or I should say the third thing I, I would get is um, it tells me sort of uh, an idea as to the volume of the prostate cancer. So I'll count how many cores out of the 12 showed prostate cancer, and that will give me sort of uh, an understanding as to how what the potential volume of the prostate cancer is, so um, so those three things are what I'd get from the results, and then I would take take that information and talk to the patient
0: and come up with the best best plan of care that works based on the yeah. diagnosis and for that patient.
1: Absolutely, and you know there are, and it's really important. And I tell all patients this is that it's really important to know that not all patients require. Uh, require treatment Um, not all patients with prostate cancer require treatment if somebody has a low grade low volume prostate Mm -hmm. cancer and we've studied this um, those are patients that could be reasonably followed now it doesn't mean burying your head in the sand and pretending it's not there and you know but um, and it's a pretty um, like it's a pretty detailed um, Uh, protocol, it would be you'd get a, um, if someone had low-grade, low-volume prostate cancer and we sought to to do what's called active surveillance, typically our protocol would be every three months they'd get a PSA and and a prostate exam and then one year afterwards would have a repeat prostate biopsy. If those remain stable, then that that falls under the assumption that prostate cancer is so slow growing that in some men this may never become a problem. The issues that we had when we were you know 20 years ago or so is that we treated patients aggressively no matter whether they had very incidental prostate cancer or really aggressive prostate cancer, we treated them all the same way. And I think when we look back and see patients maybe we were aggress- too aggressive at treating certain patients maybe before they really needed to be treated and so as urologists we've all like looked at the natural history the natural growth of prostate cancer and realized that there are some men um, that have certain characteristics in which you can safely watch them
0: so if the so if the Gleason score is higher mm-hmm. and the volume is higher based on the number of biopsies being positive, At that point, what is the next steps beyond active surveillance? So, what what are the therapies or or the surgical interventions that need to happen?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the um, so if 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 there's a significant amount of prostate cancer and the grade of it is such that it's more moderate or more aggressive, um, and a patient is healthy and. You know has at least a ten year life expectancy, then you know those patients should be offered treatment for cure. And the the two ways that we treat patients for cure would be um, radical prostatectomy. and and these days um, it's done laparoscopically and robotically. Um, you know it's 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 uh, a procedure that that's done with with less um, morbidity than in the old days when we had to do a traditional open incision. Patients tend to tolerate it very well. Um, There have been some incidental, uh, or there's some anecdotal data that have suggested that uh, erectile dysfunction and and, and, um, incontinence after a robotic prostatectomy is less than uh, open radical prostatectomy. So there's definitely um, better uh, outcomes now with uh, the use of the da Vinci robot that we have at St. Mary's. So that's that's one option, and and the other option for a cure would be radiation treatments. Now, just like with surgery, technology improves, and um, you know, just like with all the other possible side effects of of having done uh, uh, radical prostatectomies in the old-fashioned like open incision, right? There were also possible complications in the older types of radiation, but um, radiation has become much more pinpoint and precise. That um, that it's much more tolerable to patients than it was in the in the past, and so having those two types of things improve um, their outcomes and also improve like patient tolerability has been a real benefit for treating patients with prostate cancer. The fear has always been in patients who who um, went forward for treatment of prostate cancer is you know, are they going to lose their urinary control and are they going to have worse erectile function? And I think some of the newer types of treatments have, have, um, have shown, you know, have benefited patients in those types of concerns.
0: So what about hormone therapy? Where does that come into play?
1: So in, in patients, so usually after any type, if there are some patients that have a more aggressive type of prostate cancer found on their prostate biopsy. I will do a, um, a what we call a metastatic screening pro- protocol. So I'll, I'll end up getting a CAT scan and, and a bone scan. Now, hormonal therapy. There's there's um, maybe three reasons to give patients hormonal therapy. There there are patients who have co- organ-confined prostate cancer in which the prostate cancer is just confined to the prostate itself. It's not outside of the prostate or whatever. And those patients that are being treated with radiation, there have been data to suggest that they benefit from um, a combination of radiation and hormonal therapy. And what hormonal therapy is, uh, is that prostate cancer uses testosterone as food, and so um, and it uses the circulating testosterone as food. So what these hormone treatments do is they they decrease or uh, really eliminate the body's ability to produce testosterone. Now it it doesn't kill prostate cancer, um, but it can weaken it. So the idea is that the hormonal treatments in in the setting of radiation can weaken the prostate to the point where when you expose it to radiation, the prostate cancer cells die. So that's one one use of hormonal therapy for prostate cancer. The other use is in patients who have metastatic prostate cancer. We have excellent treatments for all stages of prostate cancer, whether it's organ-confined or metastatic, and they are effective. And these, um, this medica- the hormonal medications that drop your testosterone can, can also help patients who have evidence of metastatic prostate cancer. Mm. And it's been, it's been very effective. So, I mean, that's another option uh, for hormonal therapy. The third option are patients in which their um, they're relatively healthy and they have a, uh, an expected life, longer term expected life expectancy, have more aggressive prostate cancer, but for whatever reasons aren't a candidate for um, surgery or radiation. And sometimes we'll use hormonal, intermittent hormonal therapy to control the prostate cancer. But it's important to know that hormonal therapy isn't a cure, it can just weaken your prostate cancer. And right. there are patients that over time, um, the prostate cancer cells, Develop ways to get around um, the pro, uh, around the hormonal treatments, and then you know other more kind of a, more aggressive treatments would be needed. But hormonal therapy is pretty well tolerated. Um, it's a intermittent. It's a shot that's given usually every four to six months. Um, Side effects are, although there are some side effects, they're not terribly bothersome. Sometimes patients get some hot flashes, sometimes some mood instability, you know, they get a little more irritable, um, but otherwise pretty well tolerated.
0: So you're telling me kind of like, you know... Women are right. I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> Once we take away that testosterone, they're leaning towards my side of the world. <laughs> no, it's just it's great information, Doc. I, I can't thank you enough for for talking about you know prostate cancer, benign prostate. It's so important for men out there. What would you say to all men in regards to screening? If you know, I want to make sure we you know I want to talk about. Another thing yeah. too, I'd like to talk about kidney stones. But before we get off prostate, what would you say yeah. to men out there regarding it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I tell men, um, listen, um, you know, I, it's important to divorce um, the potential worries about treatment of prostate cancer from the basic screening. Mm. So, you know, guys get fearful about the screening protocols for prostate cancer because they're worried that if they get prostate cancer they're gonna be they're gonna have to have surgery they're gonna be incontinent they're gonna have all these other life-changing problems Um, and so what I want men to understand is that we have so many different treatments for prostate cancer if one develops and it's important to know that for some patients there there's no need to necessarily treat prostate cancer but unfortunately, there's no way to know whether somebody has, well one, whether somebody, un- unless he gets screened, whether somebody has prostate cancer or or not, or whether their type of prostate cancer is something you can watch, or whether it's something that requires treatment. I mean, there are so many benefits um, you know there's some obviously there's some controversy with screening but um, you know when when and they there's been a big European study out there that has looked at the benefits the pros and cons of prostate cancer screening and you know what they found is that in patients who were screened for prostate cancer, really a, a significant decreased chance of dying from prostate cancer if they had it. I think it's something like a 20% lower benefit, uh, chance of dying. Um, there, In patients who are screened, there is less risk of developing metastatic le- lesions because right. you're diagnosing those people earlier than if you just wait for symptoms to occur. Um, you know, so many, so many patients in which if you don't screen and they end up having problems, by the time they have problems, sometimes the opportunity to right. really optimally treat them has been gone, has been missed. So, you know, I, I tell patients, listen, it's a very simple screening protocol, it's a prostate, digital rectal exam, prostate exam, and a blood test. And, and to, um, to understand that, you know, discussions on whether it comes back as cancer or not, how to proceed afterwards, whether with treatment, you know, that's going to be a very detailed discussion that you have with your urologist, and we'll come up with the best thing, but don't let that fear dissuade you from getting.
0: Don't let it hold you back.
1: That's right.
0: Just like women getting their mammograms. You got to find it early.
1: Yes, absolutely. It's such, I mean, there's such significant data to suggest that, and, and that's the one thing that leads towards the benefits of screening is that you find prostate if in those patients who have prostate cancer you find them much early and at a, at a time period in which you can actually do something about you know for curative um, so I think that's really important
0: and having the robot at your disposal is yeah. been a game changer I know for you and dr. Moy
1: yeah I mean you know robotic surgery these days have done have it, this is a Huge breakthrough in urology. And, um, you know, it's allowed us to do so many. um, You know, the the surgeon, the typical surgeries that we've done um, in the old fashioned way, doing it purely laparoscopically um, without the use of a robot, were sometimes difficult. There are Mm -hmm. extended operative times, increased complications, sometimes increased conversions to like an open surgery, which has its own sort of Mm -hmm. issues. but the, the robot has made it so precise. I mean, there are things that we can do um, with the robot that we would typically only be able to do with our own hands. Wow. Um, the instruments are so precise, they're so developed. Um, I think it's really, um, and you know, there's more and more utilization different procedures that are being done with the, prosth- uh, with the uh, robot, as far as urologic procedures go, um, that are really gonna advance the way that we treat patients surgically.
0: And getting them home faster. Oh, yeah. Yeah, getting them home
1: faster, less pain, less post operative pain. Right. Um, They're quicker back to work times, um, you know, without sacrificing any oncological uh, advantage or anything like right. that. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there, the, um, what we've known about just laparoscopic surgery has been significant as far as like the way a patient tolerates surgery. But then you throw in the robot and you make it. And but the fallback with with some uh, laparoscopic procedures is that sometimes there was a sacrifice in how well they can control cancer or how well they could see the cancer. Um, I think the the Da Vinci robot eliminates that. So you you know the difference when they look at the the differences between um, like oncological outcomes with. Um, the da, Vin- da Vinci robot versus doing it the standard open surgery. I think they're equivocal, and there's some data to suggest that it could be even better.
0: Wow, well, it. the outcomes are definitely better for the patient for quality yeah. of life.
1: Absolutely, yeah, no question. I mean, I think patients have really benefited from you know this this technology.
0: Absolutely. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit. I want to use, since I have one of my star urologists on the phone with me, use the opportunity to talk about probably one of the most common things that you see in your office and really does affect a lot of men and men's health, which would be definitely kidney stones.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, kidney stones affects, you know, both genders, but um, but, yeah, this is something that we see very, very frequently in our office. And, and this is something that, you know, causes a significant – I don't know if you've ever had a kidney stone. No, but. I've been lucky. <laughs>
0: <laughs> don't jinx me now. <laughs> okay.
1: But, yeah, it can um, it can cause a pretty significant sort of um, – uh, um, you know issue with patients and you know I, one of the things that draws me to urology is, is, is and we touch about it with the robot is just the advancement in surgical tools and equipment that we use um, to, to not only to treat a person's problem but also treat it in a way that makes it easy for the patient and makes the process a little bit more seamless. And, you know, patients who have kidney stones, I mean, this is, if anyone has been out there who's had it, they know it's not fun. Um, you know, and it typically presents with severe, sudden um, flank pain, you know, on either side. Um, sometimes it can cause a fever usually nausea vomiting sometimes it gets mistaken for other things like appendicitis Mm -hmm. or sometimes it's even mistaken for like a standard back pain or or arthritis Um, but you know what I would say is that anytime you to patients anytime you have any significant sort of flank pain or side pain if it's if it's significantly there I don't think patients will disagree that they'll probably end up, even the patients that hate going to the emergency room will end up having to go to the emergency room to get some relief.
0: Now, you know, a lot of patients pass it on their own, right? And it takes time. So usually we try to have a patient work through it. When is it, when do you know that that's just not going to happen? Yeah, well,
1: certainly if the kidney shows a pretty significant damage to it, uh, or if there is evidence of an infection. So what happens with the, the reason why kidney stones cause pain is that, um, you know, stones typically within the kidney don't really cause that much discomfort. It's only when they try to pass. And what happens is that the kidney is, you know, it makes urine and it connects uh, to the bladder by a tube that's called the ureter. Mm. And what happens in patients with kidney stones is they'll develop a stone and it will drop into the ureter and it can get stuck in the ureter. And what happens is that the kidney starts to make urine but it can't. Bite, it can't push the um, urine past a stone and bring it, deliver it to the bladder. So it starts to accumulate in the kidney, and the kidney is very sensitive. So it can, it can, it'll really exhibit a lot of pain. So, the one of the things that I, um, the way that I sort of determine whether somebody can pass a stone or not, sometimes it has to do with the size. Mm. So if somebody has a very, and, a, and usually when a patient has flank pain, they'll come to the ER. If there's a significant, if there's a worry about uh, kidney stones I'll end up getting a CAT scan or an ultrasound and if it sh- it, will, it will show a stone and if one has a small stone and their pain is controlled with some of the pain meds they can offer at the emergency room then I think it's reasonable to try to see if a patient could pass it and usually what I recommend is is making sure a patient drinks plenty of fluids they control their pain and start a medication called Flomax which can help relax the ureter and allow stones to pass a little bit easier um, however, if, you, if, if a patient has a larger stone, which I I feel is large enough, which probably can't pass, that's something in which it should just be taken care of. Um, so I mean, the bigger a stone is, the less likely it's gonna be able to pass on its own. Certainly when a stone gets to be, um, approaches like a centimeter in size, I think that needs to be taken care of. But you know, a stone that's, if a patient's having significant problems, Uh, With a stone, I think it's probably a lot, uh, it's better to sort of offer getting rid of it. Um, If somebody has like an infection, you know, that's another reason to really go after and try to treat that stone aggressively. Um, if somebody has only one kidney and they have a stone, mm. that's another reason to aggressive, no matter what the size is, um, is another reason to aggressively treat a stone because they don't have the benefit of having another kidney to sort of pick up the slack if one gets right. obstructed.
0: So now so, what, what are the methods that you use to, to remove a stone?
1: so there are there are two i mean um and it really depends on where the stone is and so um if it's if it's in the ureter, um, we typically do what's called a ureteroscopy and and that's um a surgical procedure, no incisions or anything like that, but it's a small telescope that gets placed into the bladder and advanced up the ureter and um and using a laser, um, we can fragment the stone and and pull out the fragments mm-hmm. and get rid of the stone that way. Um, so usually we'll do those types of surgeries on any stone that's stuck in the ureter. If a stone is in the kidney and it's you, you if it's less than maybe a centimeter and a half or so, will recommend doing a, a shockwave treatment. And, and what that is, if that's a totally non-invasive way of treating stones. Um, we do it over at St. Mary's. Um, patients are in and out fairly quickly. They're with some sedation. Um, and that's where we use high-powered ultrasounds to target the stone and fragment it into uh, fragments that should be passable in the urine. Really effective, really well tolerated. I think if the stone's in the in the kidney, it, it makes it um, it's probably the more preferred way of taking care of stones. Right. If, if a stone is huge, and we're talking maybe greater than two and a half centimeters or three centimeters or more, sometimes we'll, it will require something a little bit more invasive, and sometimes we'll have to put a tube directly into the kidney and then um, fragment the stone and pull out the fragments uh, uh, through a sort of a bigger bigger hole on the side of the kidney.
0: Yeah. My they husband really well. my husband's cringing right now, as you're saying. <laughs> Tell him he doesn't have to worry, he's doing great. He's on yeah, no more of that for him. <laughs> yeah, right. So yeah. So those
1: are the ways that we we treat patients and it can run the gamut of right. um, of watching it, seeing right. it will pass with some medications, to doing something really minimal like shock shockwave treatment. Versus something maybe slightly more invasive to something more invasive like uh, a percutaneous removal of the stone. Um, But, yeah.
0: Well, you know, I do know, and, you know, I don't want to be the spoiler here, but I know that you and Dr. Moy are looking at upgrading some of your equipment Mm -hmm. regionally. How is that going to change the game for you?
1: Well, I mean, there's been so much... Uh, Improvements in laser technology um, that is just amazing. I mean, there is, there, before what would happen is in the old fashioned lasers, it would, you would apply the laser, which is a, it's it really exposes a stone to significant heat so it sort of creates like fragmentation of the stone mm-hmm. but sometimes the fragments would be rather big and mm-hmm. even though you break up a stone like that the, the patient still has to pass these kind of medium-sized fragments and so some of the lasers that we use now can completely dust a stone almost to the point where it's like sand wow and so you know it makes um it makes the surgery a lot easier it makes the patient's recovery a lot easier. It makes, um, you know, the risk of having something like a retained stone much less of a probability. Um, So those are, the other thing too, is just the, the telescopes that we use now have also really significantly improved too. They're becoming smaller, the visualization is much better than what they were in the past. So, you know, medical technology has just well, for urology is it advanced at such a rate that like, you know, it it, to see it translate to better care for patients is is really exciting.
0: Well, Doctor Moy, believe it or not, we're at the end of our time. Wow. Yeah. So- See, we're done. We went I didn't look at. I didn't think there was any way we'd have enough to talk for 15 minutes. You're talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Kim, for joining me tonight. Dr. Anthony Kim, one of our star urologists, along with Dr. Paul Moy, mm-hmm. you can find him at 1579 Straits Turnpike in Middlebury. And um, their phone number two zero three seven zero nine eight three two six 203 709 8326. Um, and they are on our website, traininghealthofne.org. And myself personally, I hold you and Dr. Moy in high esteem for the care.
1: Oh, that's so nice. Of we, my we husband, also appreciate everything that you do for us too, Robin. You've been so great.
0: No, you're you're great, great to have on our team. Have a wonderful night, and thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, thank you for inviting me. Take care.
0: Take care. Thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight. Um, We will be back in two weeks. This is Robin Sills, St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England. Have a great weekend.